well. This week on the show, I'm joined by Roger Bretherton and Dave Benson. So Dave is the Culture and Discipleship Director for the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Dave's got a really interesting view of Christianity and how he expresses and understands and lives out um, his belief in Jesus, in Christianity, um, how he encourages others to do so. Um, And we dive into that in this conversation. It's a really helpful and refreshing look at how Christianity can look, um, as well as our critiques of the church, especially in the West today, and the institutions, the structures, the um, ways of doing Christianity that are more often than not can lead to pain and rejection and suffering as, as I've experienced myself and I know many of you have too. Um, got a lot of time for Dave, he's a really interesting character, um, maybe he'll come back on the show in due course, we'll have to see, but this is a great look at Dave, his ideas and what contemporary Christianity uh, means and could be for all of us today. If you're new to When Belief Dies, if it's your first time checking us out, make sure you hit subscribe and then the notification bell. Uh, Doing that will mean that you're reminded whenever we release a video. Um, And if you'd be kind enough to give this video a thumbs up, it helps to boost our visibility. It means other people find the show and hopefully bit by bit we can grow, we can get more and more guests on and we can build a community together. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dave Benson. Cheers. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam and today I'm joined again by Roger. Roger, how are you doing? Hey, really good, thanks Sam. Yeah, had a good day. Good day at work today. So I've been, um, today I was actually supervising the student wellbeing team at the university that I work in, um, which is basically kind of all the mental health stuff and all the things that are going on across campus, working out how to do all that well. So it's been a really fascinating day, actually. Um, It's good to be back with you again. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, dude. It's been a while. I know um, the last conversation we had was with Dave, I think, wasn't it? Uh, Dave Hallam. Um, yeah. That was fun, looking at looking at deconstruction in depth. Um, yeah, doing all right, doing all right. Been um, Not been doing anything as cool as that today. I've been trying to implement a new system at work, which has been a bit stressful, but let's not go into that. Enough of that. Today we're joined by another Dave, which is exciting. Uh, we're joined by Dave Benson. Dave, good to have you on the show, my friend. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Good to join you. Uh, Roger told me about this show and your conversation some time back and uh, excited to finally join you. Yeah, it's good. I know I know you and Roger know each other. Um, you've spoken before. Um, you're friends from what I can tell, which is really cool. And um, Roger mentioned <laughs> you a little while ago about somebody who has a, who's, who's led a church, who's kind of had experience in the sort of Christian realm and is viewing Christianity in maybe a little, a little bit of a different way to the way that I was kind of either raised or, or thought about it before. So uh, I'm really excited to kind of get into the nuance of that shortly. But before we deep dive into sort of contemporary Christianity and what that looks like and what that means, Dave, it'd be really helpful to get a bit of an overview of of your story really a bit about who you are where you've come from and where you are now maybe even a little bit about what you believe if that's all right yeah yeah no problem Sam thanks thanks for asking um yeah so I mean I I don't want to take such a long run up that you we don't get to anything else but um uh, but maybe a few things about my family put it in context um uh, probably starting with my my dad actually because um he was brought up in a a non-christian family in the Australian context um so I grew up in uh, Melbourne, uh, Victoria in Australia. And um, his his family were not just nominal, they, they had no interest in religion and the like. But when my dad was um, kind of 12, his elder brother of 14 had an aneurysm and passed away in the night. And um, 
it threw his family into an absolute tailspin. And my mum's family, the, the two dads, worked together. Um, they were Salvation Army. And, um, and they came around my dad's family and cared for them in a, a pretty incredible way. And um, over about the next six years, my dad, who was quite, um, I guess you would say, scientifically, mathematically minded, he ended up becoming a head of department teaching in that kind of area. He, um, he came to a point where he said, I can't explain how all of this works in terms of religion, but I can't deny the difference that the love of um, you know, his future wife's family uh, showed to him. And that led him on a bit of a faith journey. And the reason why I mention that is that radically shaped the way that my dad brought myself up. Uh, and my sister is, he basically had to do the hard yards to work out what he believed and why he believed it. And so as kids, he basically said, I, I, I don't want to give you a kind of soft version. I have no natural love of Christian culture. Um, if if what you um, come to believe is um, is worth its salt, then it'll be able to stand up to uh, multiple options to plurality. Um, I don't need to coddle you or protect you. So I remember coming home multiple times from school where I'd say, hey, dad, what I'm learning in school seems to challenge uh, what what I'm learning about in the Bible. And I remember to this day, my dad would say, well, why would you believe the Bible? And I'm like, because uh, you do. And he would say, yeah, I do. But why would you? And he would then argue as a devil's advocate, um, sometimes so convincingly, I wondered if he was on the payroll. And, uh, and he would basically press me until I hit a dead end. And, uh, and then he would give me things from a range of perspectives to read and just dialogue with me. So uh, I've come to appreciate now that I've done a bit of um, uh, lecturing in uh, kind of ancient and medieval philosophy that he was playing, he was doing Socratic dialogue essentially with me. <laughs> I didn't know at the time what he was doing. I thought it was child abuse. But, um, uh, but as, as a result, most of, my, most of my friends growing up were not part of the church. And so I kind of had this almost a split life in some sense that um, people that I dearly loved and understood and, and hung out with and uh, enjoyed the sporting scene. I used to play a lot of basketball. Um, uh, I connected well with them, but they would never, never in the Australian context go to a church or be connected into a religious group. And, and yet I had a life in the church where my dad actually moved out of education into, uh, into pastoring. Um, so I ended up becoming a pastor's kid um, kind of in my later childhood um, that life also made sense to me, uh, but the two worlds never connected. And, and I think the gap between the church and the culture, um, between two worlds that I kind of understood, but felt a little bit like an outsider in both, um, just never intersected. And I think that that was part of why I ended up going into high school teaching, um, working in uh, state school context with at-risk youth. Um, this sense of there's no plausibility structure. I wouldn't use the language at the time of that, but borrowing from Peter Berger and some sociologists, um, there was no plausibility structure for most of the people that I knew who didn't have a connection to the church. And, and I felt not, not that I in any sense was going to carry that, but I thought being in that location, there's an integrity to trying to live my faith in a context where most people don't think it's, um, it's real. Uh, at best, it's irrelevant. At worst, it's dangerous. Um, and, and it's often seen as a, as a, a balkanizing force in, in education, for instance, which is where most of my background was in education. Um, so there's an integrity to living in that context, but trying to work out how do I represent the church to those outside the church, but also how do I represent uh, these friends that I dearly love to, um, you know, the Christian bubble, uh, which often has some very strange ways of doing things, of thinking, of believing. Um, so for me, a lot of my journey was um, wrestling with faith, trying to find language and ways of being that could cohere and connect 
um, and trying to do so with integrity crossing over two worlds. Um, and so that led me, now I can condense it, now that led me from um, teaching uh, eventually into youth work uh, and youth pastoring. Uh, then I did some study in Vancouver, uh, Regent College, um, looking very much at integration of faith, culture, philosophy, religion, etc. So it was a much more um, a broad um, and ecumenical approach as well. Um, and Regent College, uh, which I'm very thankful for, uh, their kind of motif was um, uh, Jacob wrestling with God at Penn AL, uh, where he comes away with a hip injury and essentially saying, we're not here to give you the answers. We're here to help you wrestle and to make a brave space where you can wrestle. And out of that, you'll be injured, um, but you won't be the same. And, and that was true. That's, that's what it actually did for me. And so I went back from that into uh, eventually youth pastoring and then um, community and evangelism and outreach and then started lecturing in a theological college. And so I did that for about 10 years, um, moved to the UK for a period when I was doing my doctoral studies in uh, uh, practical theology, public theology, looking at the place of um, sacred texts, a diversity of sacred texts in secular education uh, and finished that. And at the end of 2015, my wife and I felt um, we've, and we'll probably get into this, we'd seen enough and sensed that we there needed to be more alternatives to the way that church is typically done and understood. Um, I don't think I had that confidence in my 20s, uh, but I think after studying it and seeing a lot of things um, globally in different cultures and looking historically, I think I realized that a lot of what we take for granted in the church does not actually have to be that way. And um, I think I hit a critical point where it's like, all right, it's now or never. We either try something different or, or we just basically sit back in the pews and, um, and complain. Um, and, and there was good things in the forms that I was involved in. So I went from being uh, kind of a theologian lecturer, kept doing that, but then started uh, with my wife, Nikki, leading a house church. Um, uh, and then just in the last uh, two and a half, three years, um, we've moved across to the UK. So now I, I work for a, um, I guess you'd say a Christian think tank, um, uh, it's called the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, uh, LICC. And, and it's, it's funny, my original passion of connecting the church and the culture is pretty much the heart of my job at the moment, which is um, helping people understand the cultural context in which they are and know how to live their faith in a way that is genuinely good news to their neighbours, uh, rather than a coercion or a manipulation or a, um, a problem. It's actually a force for good uh, in a pluralistic context like ours. So I hope that gives, um, gives you a bit of a sense of where I've come from and how we got to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It was really well said. I am. Um, so I've got a question. Let me just frame it before we get there. So um, a lot of the people that listen to this show are uh, potentially ex-Christians or atheists or people that are kind of are very aware of um, Christianity as presented to it from um, probably a evangelical, um, usually quite a conservative framework. There are some kind of liberal Christians that listen along that uh, enjoy this sort of yeah. conversation. I think, it'd be really helpful to kind of get an idea day from you kind of what Christianity means and looks like. And then we can kind of understand a little bit more about kind of what that then rolls into when we begin to kind of understand more about your, your kind of current position, your current work. So for you, what, what, what is Christianity and what does it, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, I guess if you were looking from the outside in, you'd probably say that I'm evangelical. I mean, I work for a group that's identified as evangelical, um, probably got a slight charismatic leaning, which means I, I believe that um, God's spirit works in real ways, um, that there is a sense of mysticism to that, um, or mystery, um, and a dynamism to that. 
Um, but I, I remember when I was when I was uh, here in 2014 in the UK doing my doctoral studies uh, for a period under um, uh, the Regis Professor of um, of Theology at Cambridge, um, David Ford. And, and I asked him, not to make him uncomfortable, um, but I asked him for the sake of my dissertation, which was looking at an evangelical theological angle on some questions. And, and I just said, look, I know no, no theologian likes to be pigeonholed, um, but would you identify as evangelical in any sense? And I remember his response. He said, um, well, I'm orthodox because I'm grounded in the deep history of the church across millennia, but I feel... and he you know, being a good academic, he had all these big words for, for how he described himself. But he talked about five modes of theology. And he said his main problem with evangelicalism was that it did not seem to have an interrogative mode. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And he's like, well, interrogative means self-questioning. Uh, it comes at the world um, in Annie Dillard's phrase uh, from the Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, where she describes the, the, the position of the scientist who comes at the world cocksure that they just know the way things are and doesn't feel comfortable asking questions or being asked questions about it. They come with a, uh, uh, with a gospel, in a sense, to proclaim, but they don't actually come for a conversation or to learn or to listen. And I would say I've never sat comfortably with that position. Um, I do believe and, and, and warm to the, um, uh, the kind of tenor of, of your podcast is an honest conversation. Um, I, I think that's the heart of it all. And um, I, I'm very comfortable with the fact that I am uh, limited and biased. I'm finite and fallen. And with every other human being, I actually can only see the world from one particular vantage point. And talking with those who believe, think, act differently to me uh, enriches the world. Uh, and I think helps me find a better version of um, my own expression of faith. So, so I, I would say rather than mere Christianity or evangelicalism or something like that, I, I prefer the language of deep church, which was actually C.S. Lewis's preferred phrase. Um, it's almost like you can see a stream running back through history and that often in the center is not necessarily the safe place. It's often where the, the flow is the deepest and you don't get caught in the eddies or the turbulence on the side. Uh, and that's often the place where you are free to paddle. You're free to explore. So I see it as a moving tradition in that regard. Uh, the other thing I want to emphasize is that... Um, uh, I think there should rightly be a critique of um, both evangelicalism or more conservative expressions of Christianity. And I would say also an equal critique of um, forms of agnosticism and atheism that have emerged in response to evangelicalism or conservative faith, that they have so prioritized the life of the mind that they've actually forgotten that we are whole beings and, uh, and so I would speak not simply of orthodoxy being right belief, but I would equally emphasize orthopathy being right desire or virtue and character and orthopraxy being right action. And, and actually what it means to be Christian is not simply a set of doctrinal beliefs, but it's actually a way of life that is centered on the person of Jesus. Um, so for me, if someone asks, what do I believe? I'd say I am stumbling onward rejoicing, trying to learn to follow the way of Jesus in my particular place and time and trying to do so in an open way in conversation with my neighbors who see the world very differently from me. And hopefully I can learn how to do that in a way that serves the common good. Um, but I would say even deeper than the common good is actually a vision of shalom. Um, so the heart of my theology is that we are called, uh, we are made to be creatures who um, become fully alive. And we become fully alive when we learn how to connect with the creator from whom we came, uh, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and to use our gifts to do something great with the world that makes for flourishing. And that when all those things are in place, um, life works the way it's supposed to, 
even in a broken world, at least gives us a taste of what things could be and perhaps should be. Um, if we hold it, there is a talos to where everything's headed. So, um, so that's kind of the way that I'd frame it. Centered on shalom, following the way of Jesus, um, stumbling onward, rejoicing. That's fantastic, Dave. I, I think you're you're definitely the right person to join in this conversation on this podcast if you're framing things like that and uh, Thanks, sort of just being open to the to the questions, really. Um, it, just one of the interesting things you said that is I hadn't realized David Ford was who you'd worked with um, in your doctorate. Only for only for a three month right. stay, like my actual doc doctoral work was um, through University of Queensland, but I got a, a graduate student uh, travel award basically to base in Cambridge and then uh, Warwick and then Oxford, which gave me good exposure to the place of religion and sacred text in education mm. across the UK. So we did a bit of scriptural reasoning with like the three faith forum and Jews, Christians, Muslims yeah. together. So the, the only reason I bring him up is because one of the kind of questions that comes up over and over again with me and Sam is both of us really sort of struggling around the historicity of the gospels and trying to work out what to make of those mm. things as texts. And obviously the difference of John's gospel is one of the things that is one of the things mm. that come up. And um, David is one of the people who helped me with that question mm. in terms of, I, I just happened to meet him just before the lockdown and was asking him and he just finished writing his, his commentary on John at that yeah. point. Um, he was well, working on that yeah. for a long time, even when I was first yeah, there. Yeah, so yeah. really worth looking yeah. at. Anyway, this is just me diverting the conversation into stuff Roger's interested in. So let's let's get back to where we started. <laughs> um, can, can I jump straight in then to kind of the reason I thought you would be a yeah. really, really good person to have on the podcast is because one sure. of the things, you know, you and I have spoken quite often. And one of the things you said to me is, you sort of almost, the church you were leading, when you sort of started to think about new ways of doing church, the church you sort of led and facilitated in Australia, one of the things you said about it, it, it was the kind of church that would accompany people on their spiritual journey. And if that, that journey was sort of taking them away from church or away from Christianity, you wanted to help them do, do that well. And that really shocked yeah. me, as a pro, yeah. you know, particularly when so many churches are about like, grab people and hold on to them as yeah. best you can. You were saying, no, we're doing something different yeah. here. So I wonder if I could just say, um, starting with that as a proposition, what, what did you do that made that possible? And maybe, I guess, in the process, explain how it was you ended up doing church and why. Mm. Yeah, we might not need to remind me of the um, second question as we get further in, but uh, I mean, so maybe first why we took that position. Um, I think the first one is, as I look at the biblical narrative. So as I said, I'm a practical theologian, but a lot of what I do is um, what's called narrative theology. Um, I, I must admit, I don't have that much of an appetite. I'm going to offend some people here. I don't have that much of an appetite for systematic theology. Um, and, and I think that oftentimes our ethics is deontological. In other words, we're very guilty of just looking for the flat command and making it timeless. And actually, that's not the way that it flowed in um, in salvation history. I'm speaking as a theologian here. You know, we can talk about the historicity or otherwise. But um, actually, what you see is um, God acts. Uh, I'm just taking the Bible at face value here. God acts. People respond. And there's some level of inspiration in terms of um, codifying or recording what happens. And that then informs an ongoing conversation 
where people are trying to make sense of that in the present in dialogue with an ancient text. And, and the heart of that then is, um, is the kind of inheritance from the past, the questions of the present, and then finding wisdom for how to act. And, and I think finding wisdom for how to act is at the heart of all of this. And that's why, uh, like a good friend of mine, Mitch, we, um, we catch up every probably six weeks. And um, his, uh, he grew up in a fundamentalist background. He junked his faith. Um, and I've said to him, you rightly junked your faith because it was toxic uh, with his family. And um, uh, he's been, I would say, agnostic um, ever since. But we, we have faith-related conversations every six weeks. And um, I think with Mitch, he, for instance, really loves reading the Old Testament because he notices the Jewish dialogue about stuff, the wrestling. They're quite comfortable with the argument. And he, he, he still struggles to read the Gospels or the New Testament because he's only ever heard that as a clobber text. In other words, he's the one way of reading it. So he doesn't feel able to engage in a dialogue because that's disrespectful or I can only hear one voice. Um, so one of my convictions is when you read through the biblical narrative is we often stress the creation, but then we don't actually notice the conditions of creation that God set up a garden and retreated from that garden and there's a serpent in that garden <laughs> and there, there seems to be this um, sense in which we only can image God when we have a degree of genuine freedom, freedom to move towards, freedom to move away, that there is an autonomy or an agency, a right agency. Now, now granted in the story, um, however you want to read that story, there is a, um, uh, there is a, a wrong grasping for knowledge, but the problem is not knowledge in itself. The problem is um, uh, autonomous um, construction of categories that have got no connection to the created world that we are graced with. And that, that's an assertion or rebellion against the givenness of the world. But the idea that we should understand the world or make culture or name things, that's implicit in the whole dialogue, in the whole, in the whole story. So it seems to me that a lot of churches and evangelicals, they want to create a garden with no tree of knowledge of good and evil. They want to create a garden where God may have stepped out of the garden, but I want to micromanage and superintend you so that you only ever come to one conclusion. And that is not, frankly, the God that I read of in the scriptures. Um, God looks closer to a negligent parent in the scriptures by today's standard than he looks like an overbearing, controlling monster. And and I think the church, uh, I'm, I'm struck by um, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers Karamazov, where uh, essentially in the, the Grand Inquisitor chapter at the center of it, uh, you see the Grand Inquisitor say to the character of Jesus, uh, you gave them too much freedom, but they're sheep. They can't deal with that freedom, but we, the church, have learned how to control them. <laughs> and, and I just look at it and say, people cannot actually come of age, cannot grow up um, without a genuine freedom. And that freedom um, draws, it doesn't cajole. And, and I think that's one of the biggest issues. And if you, if you look at James Fowler's stuff on the stages of faith, um, kind of six, seven stages, what we find is most churches keep people in stages one, two, three, in a kind of synthetic, conventional, literalistic way of looking at it. They virtually never help people progress past stage four through six because they see questioning and challenging as a fundamental threat to who they are. And, and so we've built this kind of codependent system that actually benefits from people not questioning. And therefore, when they start to ask questions, you're seen as a threat and you're quickly moved to the side or pulled out of leadership. Whereas I actually see that's the process of growing up. So from my perspective, I have a confidence in the narrative and in the goodness of God 
That doesn't mean that I believe every person will come to the same conclusion, but I honor my neighbor and I glorify God when I give genuine freedom in a context of love for that person to explore. And, and so when we talked about our community, we felt it was to be a verge. Um, Nick was praying and actually felt that word come out of nowhere and didn't even know quite what that word meant. And all we could think of was a verge on the road, you know, if you're going off the highway or onto the highway. And what we realized is the verge literally is that graded uh, transition zone. And if you don't have a verge, you have a highway and then a drop off. And that's exactly what we'd seen. I, I might a bit later share a dream that I'd had to do with the church that I was at before this. And, um, but we just saw so many young people, particularly in the young adult years, actually growing up by rebelling and questioning. And instead of actually being welcome to engage that process, felt pushed to the side and actually left prematurely because there was no safe place to do that wrestling. And so we felt like we want to be a safe place for people who want to journey back towards God or people who want to exit. We want to help them exit gracefully. Um, I think I drew from the language of Pete Rollins there, uh, where he talked about not the Alpha course, but the Omega course, helping people exit faith with health uh, rather than despair. And um, so I believe that. So I, I genuinely value the autonomy of my neighbor and just want to have a great conversation and let them know that they're loved in the process, whatever position they hold, whatever they, the way they want to practice. I guess the way we achieve that in the community was by... Um, if I draw from uh, the work of um, uh, Paul Hebert, who was both a, uh, a mathematics trained guy, but also a key missiologist in the 1970s, he wrote a paper using mathematical theory applied to missions. So he was in the Asian context and he looked in this Asian context. I think it might have been kind of Thai type context where often to be Thai is to be uh, a Buddhist. And he looked at this and said, a lot of the way our churches work or our missions work is a bounded set. So if you think of mathematics, you've got the dots there and basically you draw a line around it. You say they're in or they're out. And a bounded set as a church is here's the boundary markers. Uh, you don't swear or you act this particular way or you've got this marker or you look like this or you say the right things, you're in. But if you break that point, you start asking questions or challenging, you're out. That's a bounded set. And he said, actually, a much better way because that doesn't work because to be tie automatically means you're out in this culture. But a centered set says, look at where the dots are, see how they're scattered. Is there a center, a functional center? Do they seem to move around something? What's at the center of that set? And the question is, are they moving towards or away? So if I change the parallel, my, my wife's family, they're, um, they're farmers. They're on a very large property, you know, many thousands of acres. Um, they, they've got fences, right? There are fences at various points, but the fences are not constrictive. The fences are kind of generally life is within this paddock. But if they want to bring the animals together, you put a well in the middle and the animals that are thirsty will move towards the well and the animals that are not thirsty will move away from the well. And that's a centered set. So what we said is we do not set our community on any particular lifestyle or profession of faith. We set our community centered around the way of Jesus. And so what that means is we have certain practices that characterize our life together. We don't predetermine you can only participate in scripture engagement if you say that you believe these you know, doctrinal points. We just say we are here to open a text that has been generative across millennia um, and that even those outside of the church would acknowledge has educational value. Um, I'm not going to predetermine the way you engage and I'm not even going to preach it. We didn't have any sermons. We would just say we're actually going to read literally an Old Testament and New Testament chapter. We're going to split apart for about 15 minutes. 
reflect upon what you feel is being said. And when we come back together, we have this image of a jigsaw that none of us have the box top. But each of you, if you do so in an open way, um, maybe for you that means prayerfully. Maybe for you that just means I'm open to mystery. Maybe there's moreness. Maybe there's something about this. Um, to bring those insights back together. And you might have one, two or three jigsaw pieces. Put them on the table. And as we put them there together, no piece is unchallengeable because you might have it upside down. You might have misunderstood. We can, we can challenge, but let's see how these pieces are contiguous or not. And let's see what picture emerges. And without fail, after a genuine uh, unstructured conversation of about probably half an hour or so of engaging this text, we would all have silence and then we'd write down what we felt was the implication for my everyday life. Not my church life, but my everyday life. And without fail, there'd usually be um, a kind of coherent theme uh, that we'd be able to share. And then we'd say, what would it look like to live this in the next week? How can we encourage you towards that? And then we'd center on the practice of communion or hospitality around the table. And, and so we just centered on practices that seemed to look like the way of Jesus, but were frankly not particularly religious in the way that we did it. Um, and it was always done in the round. And we didn't have a building we would spend probably on a Sunday about four or five hours together just hanging out. We'd have a meal connected with it. We'd have a lot of silence. It was out in nature experiencing the seasons. Um, we'd have a cause that we'd support for a couple of months at a time, which everyone in the group would bring what they felt was right to support. Um, I can go in more, into more detail, but hopefully this starts to give you a bit of an idea of the kind of ways we're doing it, which actually for me was satisfying as an educationalist because I suddenly realized that disciple making or transformation is not actually different to holistic education. It's just a lot of what we do in the churches is not frankly transformative because it's performative. Someone performs on a stage, you watch, they do it vicariously and you largely um, participate by maybe saying a couple of things here and there, but you're not actually fully engaged and participatory. You're not bringing your gifts to the table. And, and we said we wanna change that. Um, pure consumption is a cancer, but participating whatever you're standing before God or otherwise, um, participating is a path to learning how to love each other. And it's in the learning how to love each other that life takes on meaning and that faith uh, comes alive. So hopefully that gives you a yeah, sense. Yeah, that, that's fantastic, David. And I, I know when you've talked to me about it, you know, there's all kinds of sort of clever details and practices and the ways the kind of church just put all that um, to life in different ways. Now, correct me if I'm, if I'm remembering this detail completely wrong, this is going to be the oddest question in the world. But if, if I'm right about it, um, <laughs> I'm just intrigued. Yeah. Didn't you tell me at some point there was some kind of practice in the church where you would all pick up your chairs and go and sit in an old quarry or something like that? It was this new. Did you try with that? Yeah. Or I mean, what, the, what, what, what was that yeah, about? And where, where that. Does, it doesn't sound very sophisticated to me. Where does that uh, fit into it all? We said it was the cheapest church relocation <laughs> ever. Uh, anytime, like if it was if it was too sunny, we'd move into the shade and we'd often joke it's um, where where it's a church relocation. Um, yeah, where it started is um, uh, I mean we it was actually called Quarry Church, and um, it it's funny when it first started because my wife and I uh, we we were still connected into a church, but we felt like the season's finishing, the season's finishing. We're not sure what's going on, and and um and the week before we'd been wandering around this quarry just on a walk. And both of us had this sense that this place was significant and we're not highly spiritual. We just had this deep sense, like literally we just stopped there and said, we don't know what's going on, but we just had this really like a weight to it. And, um, and we just had a chat with God and said, I don't know what this means, but um, if this place is important, then, you know, show us what to do. And the very next Sunday, we're hanging out with a number of friends. There's five of us all together. 
and we just asked how they were doing and what's happening. And, and we found out that each of them, though they're actually very committed to following the way of Jesus, had totally dropped off the radar of institutional church. And, um, and we just said, why? And they said, actually, I just, I, I, I don't know, I can't stomach it anymore. It feels like there's a lack of integrity in the way that we're gathering. It doesn't align with what I think this is supposed to be about. I'm actually losing my faith by attending each Sunday rather than growing in it. Um, and we said, so what are you looking for? I mean, what are you wanting? And, um, and they said, we just want something that's honest, that's scaled back, that strips back to hear the, the original genius that kind of animated this whole movement. That's, you know, we just want to strip it back. And, and they said, uh, you know, where would you gather? <laughs> and, and they said, I don't know, like all of us love the outdoors and it feels like the call to the wilderness. Like if you look again in the, in the Bible, you notice that with Jesus, he goes out to the wilderness and people follow and then he breaks bread. He literally does communion on a mountain with 4,000 people. And it's like once you strip away the buildings and you get back to the sublime of your littleness before, you know, nature, um, things look different. And I think a lot of our environments are so artificial, they're contrived, and that doesn't help our spirituality. Um, and so we wanted to experience the cold, the heat, the discomfort, the rain. Um, and so we said, well, maybe we should just meet there. And then we started for six, six months. We literally just met the um, five of us. We didn't tell anyone. We didn't make a logo. We didn't make a website. We didn't badge it. We just said, we don't even know what this is. We just know that we kind of need to go through a putting off period. And so we did that. And then after six months, we said, okay, that's been, uh, it's been interesting. Um, this feels significant. Is that the end of it? And then each of us felt, no, there's something to this. And, um, and so then we just said, well, we're not going to promote it. Uh, matter of fact, we're going to tell people how uncomfortable it is. <laughs> really good PR. And, um, and then by the end of, um, so then it just started with people would ask what we're doing. We'd tell them about it. We'd usually discourage them from coming. And then um, uh, about five years later, I think there was a community of about 50 of us all together um, that would gather across three different things that we did. Um, and uh, we'd often have, the funniest part to me was we would often have pastors who had a week off, <laughs> who under the radar would come and join us. And um, and often, often, we get a chance to just listen and pray for them and chat. And it's funny because almost without fail, they'd say the same thing, which is there's something so right about this, but I have no idea how I could ever even consider bringing this back to my congregation. It would break every pastoral care contract that we have where they, you know, they pay their dues and they expect me to provide a religious service. Um, but actually the interactive nature was for me, the best experience of, uh, of being part of a community trying to follow Jesus that I've had. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support when belief dies. Firstly, would you rate when belief dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends, and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right. Let's get back to this week's conversation. In the um, 
in the New Testament, quite often Jesus is doing something and the Pharisees come along and they challenge him or they say stuff and he rebukes them. You see it happening quite a few times. And um, I'm not saying it's true, but um, what I was once told could be an answer for this is because um, Jesus was actually a, uh, a Pharisee. Um, he was actually a member of the Pharisaical community and he ended up beginning to teach and preach in a way that was not the way that the Pharisees would have wanted somebody to go around preaching and teaching. Jesus went into his ministry, everything changed after his baptism by John, and he began going down this new road. Now, I'm not saying that's correct, but what, what, what I find interesting is um, it's very, very clear that Jesus has a calling, has a vision, has a well, as you've been kind of mentioning, that he's mm. encouraging people to to be drawn towards. Um, the Pharisees didn't like it, though he got annoyed about it, etc. And I know that a similar thing happens quite often with conservative Christians and conservative churches. If uh, another church is doing something differently, there's often a rebuke. And one of the rebukes that happens, and I kind of want to um, ask you about this, um, Dave, you kind of mentioned the way of Jesus um, could be viewed as quite loose language. And this idea of a well, mm. um, people coming together, you mentioned this, your, your, your wife's family's land, the well, the animals come if they're thirsty. Um, it seems very clear to me, at least, that the well Jesus was bringing people to is a very powerful well that has changed people's lives. Like, you can't, you know, even if you don't believe in God, you can't say that Jesus hasn't completely and utterly transformed the world like he has. There's just no way of saying he hasn't. Um, how do you know, Dave, that the well that you're encouraging people to come to is healthy? How do you, how do you know that it is right if there isn't uh, structure or orthodoxy or uh, creed or ways around it that are kind of actually pointing back to the fundamental truth rather than just individuals desires for a kind of re-amalgamation of Jesus like yeah quite, quite of a, a big question but I'd be really interested to kind of hear like how do you know the well that people are coming to is actually not toxic but is life-giving yeah that's a great question um, Sam and, and we may also want to go back to some of the pharisaical issues because I think we experienced a few of those challenges along the way as well um, and hopefully uh, didn't exemplify that in the way that we engage but I, I think there's probably two two things I could talk about um, one is in the Bible there is actually a pretty full picture of what life in Christ looks like it's not an ungrounded type of thing for instance you've got the fruit of the spirit as a measure uh, I remember Augustine in On Christian Doctrine was um, was kind of asked, what's a good interpretation and what's a bad interpretation? Or what's a right or a wrong interpretation? And, and he said, well, um, a right interpretation is one that uh, better helps you love God and your neighbor. So in other words, it's kind of a, um, it would be anachronistic to call it utilitarian, um, but there is a utility value um, that is associated with certain ways of doing things that seems to produce life. Um, I, I like a lot of the early church fathers and Irenaeus said the glory of God is man fully alive or humanity fully alive. So, so I think that vision of Shalom, which is so central in the Bible of people in right and flourishing relationships that are characterized by justice, relationships with God, with neighbor, with nature and with self. When you see those kind of things happening in a non-controlling way, but you see healthy relationships you kind of have an indicator. Are we seeing the fruit of the spirit growing? Are people looking more loving? Um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are we seeing these kind of characteristics? Um, so that's one of the things is uh, actually what is the, if you want to use that very religious language, what is the fruit in this person's life? Um, and I think each of us could say for ourselves, but also looking at the community and those who are beyond our community, we could start to see some of the evidence of that. Um, 
and 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 I noticed too if you're using say um uh, Robert Putnam and a couple of other similar sociologists about bonding and bridging we noticed a deepening within our community but we also noticed an opening up to those beyond our community um, for instance one of the causes that um, uh, a guy in our group um, he came with a cause that he wanted to support um, called major projects and um, we each have an op opportunity to share why we think this cause and and so he shared this group and basically they were ex uh, I think ex Navy uh, guys who um, uh, were divers and they noticed that in the Pacific uh, there was a lot of sunk ships where they were rusting and the oil was starting to leak out and affect the reef and that was affecting the whole ecology and that was affecting the uh, the people and their livelihood and these guys basically off their own bat had um, bought an ex-navy uh, ship and all the diving gear and they just needed the money to be able to get it out to these reefs to go and assess the damage uh, and to go and weld the uh, the hulls. Now this guy um, Andrew in our group um, he just saw this and he just said that looks like the kingdom of God like they're, they're using their gifts to help the neighbors they're caring for the reef it's got an ecological dimension too he's like that just looks like the kingdom of God and so he said all right um, we all felt yeah this is right you go check it out Anyway, so we got an email back that said um, they were happy to, uh, to receive some money, encouragement, promotion uh, across the next couple of months because we didn't have any overheads. We raised uh, a number of thousand of dollars for them, just had a very small group of us. But the amusing part was when we got the email back from them, they, the final acceptance email had a whole string of emails below it, which they forgot to delete. And the very first email was when they received it and they passed it on to their boss. And literally the subject was, um, God's got money, WTF. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they basically chatted with each other and said, I, I think that the, the literal dialogue was, um, this crazy group of people are asking if we would take their money. Um, uh, they, I've checked the website. They seem like they're legit, um, but we're not religious. Uh, should we take their money? And that, that we got the whole thread of their backward and forward dialogue. And they're like, well, I mean, if they want to support us, great. And, but you could see the kind of fruit emerging in the lives of Andrew, in the lives of the group, in the bridging and the bonding. And so you could see the life. So that, that was the first thing. The second thing I'd say is that um, part of the blessing of doing or the goodness of doing the study over the years for me was in the early days, I thought there was a certain, certain form to the way church should be. But as I studied and I looked at across history, um, for instance, I read Frank Viola's book, Pagan Christianity, where he essentially skewers almost every practice of the modern church, including the sermon, um, including the robes and the colors. And he goes methodically through um, about 400 references at the end in terms of where these practices came from. Most of them were fusions with, for instance, Roman rhetoric or Greek philosophy. Like the syncretism is just all through. And so a lot of the ways that we gather as the church today are actually historically novel. And so what I realized is when you look across cultures, like if I went into Ethiopia and joined a Coptic church, um, one of their core practices is reforesting. Like genuinely reforesting. They have a deep belief that um, the church is the place where we go to the tree of life and we connect with Christ who is the tree of life. And that actually being in a sacred grove reflects that intimacy of walking in the garden again with God. So everywhere the church, the Ethiopian Coptic church goes, they plant groves of trees. You can literally see the satellite images of how they have reforested whole sections of Ethiopia um, because of their way of practicing their faith. 
Now, there are such diverse practices across the Orthodox Church, Coptic Church, different denominations, Catholic Church. And, and, and so I look at it and say there is actually incredible freedom. And the center of it is not a particular form. The center of it is the function, which is forming people who look like Jesus, who live in a way of life that seeks shalom. And, and so I actually see that there is incredible freedom to practice that faith in a number of ways that do fit a broad doctrinal statement like the Apostles' Creed. So we're still tied into the, tied into the traditions, but we've made a low-gated community to say, come and join, come and see. And that itself seems to track back to the way of Jesus. So it's centered on practices like reconciliation, being with the least of these, confessing of our sins, caring for the poor, um, practicing scripture engagement and believing that God will actually speak as we read this text together and seek wisdom for our lives. So there's a lot of forms that actually do historically tie back in a deep church way, but may look novel to someone who is grounded in, for instance, a 16th century church that in Protestant circles was largely established in a way that protected against what they saw as heresy um, or a, a, a sacramentalism such as with the Eucharist um, that it automatically functions to save you just regardless of what you believe. So they, they move the communion table to the side and put the, uh, uh, put the, the podium at the center essentially to preach from the lectern. Um, and you've got a new practice and now we go 300 years down the track. Oh, that's just the way church is done. And I'm like, no, I, I refuse to accept that because it's not just the way church is done. And actually that practice arguably deforms you against what it was meant to serve which is forming people who love well. Uh, so, so my question is, and my background, as I said, is in teaching. I was a physical education teacher. Um, I look at it from a practices perspective. If I go to a gym, I, we just joined a local gym up here. If I go for a session with a personal trainer and they simply sit me on the side to watch them lift weights for an hour and then say, wasn't that a great session? I'll say, bollocks, that was a good session. The reality is you performed I consumed, I'm not changed and I haven't changed my habits. But the reality is that we are meant to practice our way of faith when we're gathered so that when we scatter to our everyday places where we live and learn, work, play, shop, serve, when we scatter to those places, we are formed in a way of being that looks like Jesus. So when I practice, for instance, um, confession on Sunday, which I should practice, then when I go to work on Monday and someone, you know, is harsh or takes the glory when, you know, I should have got credit or I'm formed in a way of being that I can quickly admit my own problems and can also extend grace to that person because I practiced it on Sunday. And so my question is not, did we keep the forms that my church has always done? My question is, how does the way we practice our faith when we're gathered shape me to be a better human being when we're scattered? And, and so I, I think in that regard, historically, culturally, formationally um, i think the way that we were experimenting with things it's not a silver bullet but it was far superior to the forms of church that i'd been brought up in um, that frankly were consumerist really interesting really interesting and my one comment on weightlifting is uh, if you don't learn proper posture first you won't be able to lift as heavy as you could so it's always good <laughs> to watch someone else do it to learn how to do it and absolutely lift heavier later i like that I like <laughs> um <laughs> okay so um when I was a pastor for a short period of my life, um, I uh, was always really worried about kind of people being saved, I guess, and this this constant nagging at the back of my head that um, I'm meant to be the the light of Christ, the lamp that's not hidden under a vase or whatever it is, light on the hillside that's shining out for everybody. Mm. Um, I'm meant to be this example for others so they can be saved. And 
kind of one of one of the things I really want to ask you is 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 with this idea of kind of Christianity being a place where the bar is low for people to to enter. Is there any weight upon the shoulders of those that are not necessarily like, like the elders, but the leaders or the, um, the the people that are kind of consistently there being part of it and helping the actual gig to actually kick off on a Sunday and close off on a Sunday? Is, is there any pressure on, on, on the shoulders to to enable people to become something? Or is it really it really is just a place for people to come to the well if they want to and leave if they don't want to? And And do you feel any regret or any tension or any remorse at those that might have left and do you ever look back and think i should have said this differently or i should have done that differently like how do you i guess how do you not have um that pain and that concern about people's because i mean if you believe in jesus right you believe in the afterlife you believe in eternity and if you believe that they can walk themselves into a position where they're rejecting god or they can walk themselves into a position where they're going to seek the Mm. well that's an eternal position theoretically so how do you kind of navigate that as well as keeping the bar low and leading something like that that must then there must be pressure there unless i'm mistaken i i felt a lot less pressure in that form than i did in normal church <laughs> i can definitely say that Fair. i can definitely yeah. say that um because the other one was more performative so you're worried for instance with the sermon you know am i going to say the right thing is this going to connect um the bar was low in the sense of anyone could come and join but i would say the bar was very high in terms of what we did when we gathered you see when we gathered um if you wanted to stick with us um, and we did have a number of people who had no faith, who it's their own reasons, I guess. Maybe they enjoyed the community. Maybe we found the discussions interesting. I, I, I don't know. We didn't ask in that regard. They were free to come, free to go. Um, uh, if they came, they would actually engage in scripture reading. They couldn't just come and watch. Like it was all participatory. It was in the circle. Um, everyone led something. So literally every week we'd work out who's going to lead the liturgy and we had a basic liturgy that you could draw from, but you could change that around if you wanted to. And that had a strong justice emphasis as well. So um, uh, so it was from Shane Claiborne and a couple of guys, um, uh, uh, the Common Way community, the great bunch of guys. Um, uh, so we used the liturgy. We had someone to learn with the kids. We had someone to lead the, um, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we had someone to do some deeper study on the passage. And, and every week we'd say, who's doing each of those things? So even though Nikki and I were identified, I guess, as the leaders of the community, we were very clear and we weren't paid to do this. There was no money coming in to us and literally everything that we gave went to the cause that we chose at the start of every second month. So there was great integrity with that. So every person was expected to contribute and we would say each week, this group exists because we are coming to bring our gifts and grow up together. And the only way we grow up is to learn how to give. So it was a very high bar in that sense because there was no safe space to freeload. Um, so so I, I don't feel the tension there. I, I think as well, I had confidence that if you consistently engage these practices, the practices themselves don't save, just like a spiritual discipline doesn't bring God's presence. But it's like if you're in a boat and you um, hoist the sail. Hoisting the sail makes a space that can receive the wind that can take it somewhere. The practices of scripture engagement, of confession, of reconciliation, of giving, of um, hospitality, these practices were hoisting the sail to make a space within which if God chose to breathe and if that person was receptive, they would sense something. I don't just mean they would have some frisson of excitement. I mean, they would start to see that God is there and it's actually in the quality of the way we love each other that God is made known. So therefore, my interest was what conditions make a space in which you can experience give and receive love and the giving and receiving love 
requires radical freedom. If you don't have radical freedom to come and go, then you can't actually love because it's coerced or it's contrived. Um, so as a result of that, I had confidence that making this kind of space, which was participatory and co-constructive, that that would make the space needed in which you could give and receive love and in which therefore you might experience that God is there and God speaks and God cares. Um, so in my mind, without those conditions, I would actually question whether someone was genuinely making a response to God. And I think that a highly um, uh, kind of emotional environment in which you feel a pressure to come to the front in an altar call where you didn't actually engage in a dialogue to count the cost to work out where you go, I actually wonder to some degree whether that is such a contrived environment that it removes some of those conditions. So you might be able to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, some people came to faith. Well, that's great and everything. But that is ultimately, I believe, a, a mystery and a work of God and a response of freedom of that person to God's drawing, however they receive that. So I guess I actually have a visceral reaction against the opposite. And I feel like the right conditions are met in creating that kind of free space. Uh, and that honors that person. Uh, and it also means that if they choose to go with it, they will own that commitment in a way that they wouldn't if they felt like they were doing it for some other social reason. Um, now, I would say in that there were situations that were tough. I'll give one example here. Um, I'll do my best to not use names, though that is not a gift of mine. Uh, <laughs> um, but we had a member of our group who was um, actively in the prostitution industry. And, uh, and she was for a number of years. And um, that was tricky because uh, all of us acknowledged her freedom. Um, None of us believed in her particular circumstances, not to, to judge or damn a whole industry, but we did not feel that this was healthy for her. Um, although I want to stress that the moving towards or moving away, we worked with her to consider how she might, in a healthier way, moving towards Shalom, might practice her industry in a way that would be causing less damage and amplifying any good. So I know, for instance, that a number of her um, colleagues in the sex industry um, if they had someone who had a disability or was particularly vulnerable, they would recommend that that person would go and see her because they knew that she would care for them in a way that others may not. So it was interesting that even in a borderline slash um, uh, technically out of bounds um, uh, profession that the church throughout history would have said is not a true vocation because it's actually essentially working against the structures that are received in terms of commitment that's got consensual sex perhaps but it's not it's not um, grounded in a, a lifelong commitment or monogamous commitment even so there are better and worse ways of doing everything so our aim was to journey with people towards the good and not to force them but to support to pray for to care um, we as a as a church literally went over there one day when um, this person had uh, an injury that actually broken their ankle it meant that they were kind of out of action and we went over as a church and we cleaned her house with her there um, uh, I confess that I was somewhat conflicted. You know, it was, it was like sharpening the needles for a drug injection room. Like, like there was something about it that we felt conflicted. And yet at the same time, I don't think any of us ever felt closer to Jesus than when we were just being with someone in a non-judgmental way without feeling we were superior in any sense and just saying, how can I clean your shit up? How, how, how can I show you love? And what would love look like for you? How would you receive love? We hit a point um, with that person in the community where um, there was a very bad situation and they were actually seriously abused in one of their encounters. And um, I, 
I still don't know. To this day, I'm torn. Um, I, I tried to respond with love, but I think I probably responded with a bit of judgment at that point because we'd said, we'd journeyed with them for ages and said, there's ways out of this, you know. Like, there's ways out of this. And I probably spoke a bit more directly than I normally would. And they chose to break off relationship with our group after that conversation because they felt we weren't accepting them and affirming them where they're at. Um, it was tough because we wanted to say, we support you as a person, but we also as a group are committed to journeying towards life. And you seem to consciously be making a decision at this moment where you actually have a juncture point. You are consciously choosing to go further back into something that has just caused you damage. And we care for you and we don't want to see you damaged. Now, we never told her she had to change or she's out of the group. But I think we did express a sense of what may be better or worse for her. Um, she broke contact with the group at that point. Funny thing is, a number of years later, actually got back in touch with me when they had got out of that industry and actually got back into teaching. You always wonder who your teachers are after hours. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but actually got out of that and touched base again. And, and, you know, we haven't been able to keep contact because I, I was in the UK by that time. But it was interesting that when they finally got out of it, something in their conscience <laughs> actually said, I want to reestablish relationships. So we never broke the relationship, but we did have a sense of directionality to that, that we do believe there is a vision of the good. And we'll encourage you towards that. And we'll even say that we're not going to hide from that. We won't affirm something that we believe is not healthy, but we will love you unconditionally and, and make an environment of support so that you can become fully alive in relationship with God, neighbor, nature, self. So, so I hope that gives you a sense of the tension. Oh, that, that, that's a great example, Dave. And, and you don't often hear um, church leaders talk about those kind of situations, particularly where there's sex work or um, sexual assault involved that are, now, I, 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 I sort of supervise a few sort of therapists who work with women in sort of domestic abuse situations. And that line between how much do you accept versus how much do you judge? How much do you get them out of this terrible yeah. situation versus not? It's really nice to have a church leader really understanding kind of the, the complexities of that and how I think all of us are likely to get it wrong at some point in some way. Um, and if I could just add one one thing to that, Roger, thanks for that. that um, when I look at, again, the life of Jesus, which is our standard all the way through, I'm struck um, in his baptism um, that he walked into the waters and John is like, no, this is not right. And it's like, well, why shouldn't you walk into the waters? Because if you walk into the waters, what you're saying is, I need forgiveness. And the savior of the world cannot need forgiveness. And he's like, he's not like, no, no, you don't understand, John. I actually did some bad stuff just out back before I came up to, you know, he's like, no, it's fitting for all righteousness. In other words, if you hold within the nature of the biblical story that, that Jesus believed himself to be um, God incarnate, uh, the savior of the world, that he so radically identified with people in their brokenness that he was prepared to enter into the mucky waters and be called a failure, a fraud, a sinner, a backward, a degenerate like everyone else, that by the end of his life, he's known as a friend of sinners. Now, he would share food, he would hang out, and he didn't do so in a patronizing way, even as he did have a vision of the good, which was, I haven't come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. Well, that's a judgment, yes, but he's not coming in a superiority. He's coming, I want to bring life. And, and so I just looked at the way that Jesus did that and said, this seems like the kind of thing you do. The problem is once you start doing that, you get identified with them and you start to bear the shame that they've borne. And that's when you start to go, okay, how prepared am I to enter into this way? Am I prepared to be shamed? And I got in trouble, I'll be honest, I got in trouble in my theological college. 
um, because um, this person actually took up my subject as an audit, uh, my subject on faith at work. And uh, <laughs> I got every student sharing about, about their work and uh, I couldn't hide. Uh, she kind of shared her story about her work and I had a number of students uh, complain to the administration and say, you know, he's not condemning this line of work. And I said, you've totally misunderstood. I said, um, it is not truly a vocation in the Christian understanding, but there's better and worse ways of doing everything. And we want to support this person and honor her humanity and support her as a person so that maybe she'll find a different way. But, but that is her choice to make. So, so that kind of radical freedom is unsettling when people are more interested in keeping their hands clean than actually using their hands to love. Um, and, and I've done that imperfectly, as I said, so I don't want to make out as though we had it all together. But it just seemed fundamentally that's kind of the way of Jesus, which is very different to the way the church often looks. That's that's so helpful to hear, Dave. And I, I guess as, as you're talking about that, I'm kind of thinking about how in, in church quite often we reject people because they threaten us in some way. There's something about them that sort of bends us. And I, I yeah. think um, as I've talked and as I've heard ta Sam talk as well to lots of sort of people in that sort of deconstruction space where perhaps their way of being a Christian stopped working for them and they, they start to express that mm. and very often they find themselves sort of ostracized or rejected or whatever. Given your experience of working just constantly in that sort of space of uncertainty, questioning, whatever, um, how do you think churches should relate to people who, who end up in that sort of deconstructed slash deconverted space, even if they sort of find it difficult to do so? I'm reminded of a, um, I, I don't know the historicity of this story. Well, they say I might come back and say we don't know the historicity of any of these stories. <laughs> but uh, there, there was a story in the early church about um, the Apostle John. Um, I think it was passed through, um, I can't remember the exact line of disciples, but there was Polycarp, etc., etc. There was one of the stories by um, Eusebius uh, of essentially where John went to this community and, and told, the, told the community, you know, here's so-and-so, they've come to faith, um, just look out for them, right? And he comes back a number of years later and says, Where's, where are they? And it's like, oh, they left us. And it's like, did you go after them? And, and they're like, uh, no, 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 no. And he's, <laughs> and he, he went to find them and he didn't, he didn't like, you know, in that kind of August, Augustinian misuse of the passage, you know, compel them by any means, which was used to justify crusades and the like. Um, it, you know, the story doesn't have that John went and dragged them back in, but he went and loved them and, and just loved them. And, and by the end of his life, apparently the, the story goes that John would virtually just mumble everywhere he went, love them love them, love them. I'm like, from my perspective, um, and again, it's not a patronizing love. It's just a genuine love. Like, if I could just tell you, tell you one brief story, I, part of the breaking point for me from the church I was in, which is not a judgment on the church genuinely, and I've got family in the church, so if they ever watch this podcast, they might be wondering how I see what they're all very deeply invested into, and bless them in that. Um, but I had this dream of the building that we we're in, which was quite a large building. And, and you could actually see across a whole valley beneath it with storms coming across. And, and um, I had this dream where I was sitting towards the back row. And that's where all the young people went, like the young adults. And they went basically when they, they had to kind of come or were associated, but didn't give a crap what was going on in the stage. 
and um, and, and I, I could see the uh, the preacher was up on the stage and they're preaching up a storm. Um, but they seemed totally oblivious to the fact that outside the back window, you could see, uh, this was in Brisbane, a massive storm brewing. Like, I mean, one of those, you know, green monster kind of storms. And, uh, and I could see this storm starting to build. And I looked at one of the girls in the youth group who, who um, later left, and, uh, and she was always on the edge of faith. And I could see that she was feeling anxious and no one else could pick the problem. And she's starting to look anxious. And then she started to look over towards Nikki and me and then started to move closer. And meanwhile, I noticed that the storm was now starting to lash the windows. But the sermon at the front was exactly the same. Nothing had changed. No one acknowledged that there was this big storm happening outside. And she's looking at me like, what are we going to do? And then I noticed that the rain started to flood through. It was just pissing through the roof, basically, in the back of, of this area. And I noticed all these people almost being drowned, starting to move closer to us. And then I woke up. And, and I just thought, it's almost like anytime someone leaves the church, we have a very convenient narrative of they weren't really faithful. That's why they left. And I'm like, but what if, what if the church is so insulated and status quo against a changing world that we've actually not read that we perhaps are out of step with God's own heart expressed through Jesus. And we're so busy with business as usual that Ichabod, which is a, an Old Testament Hebrew phrase, God left the building and we didn't even realize it. And we're just performing our normal ritual. But actually the people who are potentially most faithful were the ones most sensitive to the storm. And if we had have actually listened, perhaps we might have changed some of the ways that we did things and asked hard questions of ourselves rather than damning those who left. Because maybe the problem is in the building. Maybe the problem isn't with those in the back row. That is such a great story, Dave. The, um, yeah, weirdly, something very similar like that happened in real life in my church. <laughs> Oh, serious? <laughs> Distraction and uh, they kept going, yeah. A few years back here in here in England, we had really, really strong snow, like huge snowstorms. And there was one uh, week, one Sunday particularly, where, so so I was in this kind of quite big mega church, you know, maybe a thousand people roughly there on a Sunday morning. Mm. And one week, because of the snow, I think only about like 30 people could get there. So you've got 30 people knocking around in this huge auditorium. And Faith the band you. kick off as if they're playing to a thousand people. And, Everything just happened oh, yeah. exactly the same and no one even acknowledged that maybe we could have adapted this a little bit, maybe. We, might have been a bit yeah. <laughs> we got the microphones, the technology, and yeah. Um, but but that, that probably leads on to, I mean, this will be my last question before I hand back to Sam. But um, kind of one of the questions that, that sort of hangs around a lot of what you're talking about and also sort of your interest in culture, really, is that I, I sort of sit with this query about whether to be optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the church in the West. You know, are we just on a highway to nowhere? We're diminishing to nothing. We're going to become this tiny persecuted minority or whatever. Or do we, or is there sort of some more gas left in the can? It'll turn around, something different happened. Just before I sort of finish asking questions for tonight, um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Where, where do you think this is going? Because we, we've heard different views of this on this podcast really as well so i just love to hear your thoughts on it before we finish yeah yeah it's it's, it's interesting because um i just had this last week in in uh, seoul in in south korea and uh some part of the lasagna movement which is kind of a, a global collection of people we're planning for a, a congress with uh in 2024 in september which which will probably have about 5,000 people in person, 5,000 online from literally every country. And it's such a global movement. And so I was hanging out with, I'm part of the programming team for that. And 
hanging out with a number of um, uh, leaders from different parts of the world. So one guy from China, uh, one guy from Malaysia, a Hong Kongese Christian, um, a South Korean Christian. And, um, and one of the guys, um, I don't think he'd mind me using his name, he's not in a particularly persecuted part, but it's still a very Muslim part of the world, um, uh, in Malaysia, Hua Yung, very senior, respected Christian leader. Um, I, I, he's an academic as well, and I've read a number of his papers, but he is, I think it's fair to say, absolutely damning of the Western church. Um, he refers to it as managerial missiology managerial missiology and what he says is we have substituted a dynamic reliance in humility on however god wants to lead and um, instead we've substituted uh, quantifiable measures um, controlled strategies um, church growth plans uh, and essentially we have made it into a business and uh, just like jesus threw out the uh, uh the stall holders <laughs> um we probably need to evict some of this from the church and and so i actually think I actually think um, in terms of the church in the West, I think there is at the moment an entirely justified cleansing of the church of a lot of dross and a lot of um, practices that are out of step with, with um, the heart of God. And even if you're not uh, a believer in God, um, I would say it's out of heart, out of step with what makes for flourishing. It's, it's just not healthy. Um, so I am highly sympathetic to most of the critiques of the church because I share them. Um, I'm in a, a bit more of a mainstream church at the moment, though we still have community groups as more of the center. And, uh, and I think we're a very human institution. Um, I think we do well to take ourselves less seriously and just look at what cultivates life instead of having these narratives of are we getting bigger or are we declining? Um, my theology, a bit like with the emphasis on freedom for the individual, um, actually has quite a discontinuity between the now and the not yet. My sense is not that uh, the church does something great and it gets bigger and then Jesus just goes, oh, I think they've hit a critical mass. I might go down there and say, well done. Let me now claim it because you've now got dominion over the whole world. <laughs> I look at it and say, I don't care whether it gets bigger or smaller. I care about the quality. I care about the integrity. And when we look more like Jesus and are simple and are buried in the dirt like a seed that dies and we're not interested in promoting our own glory, but we're just interested in laying down our lives out of love for our neighbor, that we're identified with the least of these and we're not looking for being celebrated or in the PR. I, I just, I don't care about any of that stuff. I, I actually find all of our metrics um, to quantify how important we are and to justify our existence based upon impact statements. I, I find it quite distasteful and it seems out of step with the way of God. I'm not saying we can't be strategic, but I just, I find that distasteful. So my confidence is... You'll debate this in other episodes, I'm sure. But my confidence is in the person of Christ, in his resurrection. And that, for me, is the beginning of what we one day will see. So our role now is to be a taste of that. Just a sign. We're a trailer for the movie. We're a taster for the banquet. I don't need to be more than that, but I need to be that with integrity. So we are a taste of what it's meant to look like. And if we're not healthy, then how can you be a taste of that? If we don't love each other well when we gather, how can we expect anyone to find us plausible when we scatter? And so a lot of my critique is actually directed at the church and saying, can we just clean house? Judgment begins at home. Can we just stop throwing things at other people and actually look at ourselves and say, we've got a lot of space for some repentance, being genuine rethinking and realignment with the way of God. And, you know, maybe, maybe in God's grace, if we sort that out, maybe it'll start to have an impact again on the culture. Um, I don't know. What I do know is that um, there are many places where the church is a hell of a lot healthier 
um, than what we are. Just just uh, just at the end of that soul gathering, um, I had the, my boss basically say to me, "Hey, um, I've got someone email me out of the blue, and they're trying to get." Four, they collected on the Isle of Guernsey. They, they collected 4,000 um, jackets for the people in Ukraine. And we've got a contact in Moldova who can walk it across the border into, into the Ukraine, but we can't get it into Moldova. And if you've got any contacts, and I, I literally, with a group I've been part of, where there's a couple of thousand of us who have journeyed together from about 180 countries, I just put a notice on there and said, hey, someone's trying to do some good in this way. Within half an hour, I had 10 responses with contacts that basically facilitated within a day we'd sorted to be able to get 4,000 jackets across into Moldova to then be walked up into Ukraine. Um, they're not there yet, but it's now all aligned. And I'm like, that's what it looks like when a, a healthy church in a global level is actually at work. Great good can be done with integrity and it doesn't need to celebrate its own importance. So I've got confidence in that. I have very little confidence in the current forms of Western Christianity, um, but I think there is depth if we're prepared to look outside of our own navel gazing and, and open up to different ways of being that are more participatory and acknowledge the freedom and autonomy of our neighbours. For um for what it's worth and it's it isn't worth much, um <laughs> my my sort of view of um of the church, especially the church in the West, is that it's um almost like an empire in ruins. Like I want to kind of, you know, like picturesque, like the Mongols sacking of Rome or something like really, really drastic mm. like that. And I, I wrote a piece a little while ago called um, The Burning Orange Autumn Leaves, in which I talked about my own personal mm. experience of um, being rejected very heavily, me and my family being rejected by the church and um, how the reality is that when people talk about the bride of Christ, all I see now is this, this, this figure in this white dress desperately waiting for their their husband to come to them and they're completely caked in blood and they're completely blind to the fact that they're they've desecrated themselves and that this this blood this very blood drips from the doors of the church and my, my the only hope i have is that christ can somehow even reconcile that mm. back to himself like somehow he can actually mm. come back and re reform that and you know that's the whole point of the cross right it's not just um the sin then and the de and desecration then but it's it's even what his church has gone on to do it's um i just i i can't see how they come back from it i i can see how christianity continues and i can see how how faith continues but these sorts of um organizations institutions conglomerates to some description um are quite scary so my my, my final yeah. question i actually had written for you dave is yeah. all around this it's around the you know, there are going to be people listening who aren't Christian, who are atheists, who kind of would like to begin to look at a church as the sorts of way that you're talking about. But I live in Halifax. There's nothing around here apart from Satan worship. Um, so, like, yeah, <laughs> see, see how that does. Um, <laughs> that might be a welcoming yes, Different sorts of blood, but still blood, I'm sure. Um, uh, anyway, sorry. Um, so so how, how do people like honestly begin to get involved with this like it almost feels like if there isn't persecution there isn't real genuine heartfelt desire to seek god so how can people begin to even try and consider looking at finding a church or a community that are going about this sort of well-centered as in the well that people are coming to centered living of christianity rather than a i sit at the back and watch the preacher at the front give a sermon rate him out of 10 and then leave like how do we begin to re-establish or, or find something that can give us that hopeful fruit that you've been talking yeah. about oh, that's a great question sam and, and just a, a quick pick up on the thread of what you said before i'm really moved by that that poem i saw that language pop up on your um website so i'm going to go back through and have a look at that after we 
finish the call tonight, but um, in our house church, we actually did a study of Shisako Endo's book, Silence. I don't know if you've seen the, the movie that was made about that, but it's got this profound thing in Japan uh, where in the kind of 16th century with the, um, the Jesuits coming through where Christ himself calls for them to trample his image because the whole thing's become profaned. And, and, and basically that represented a kind of almost um, renunciation of faith. And, and, and I think there's a sense in which sometimes the most faithful thing to do is to trample the form you've received when it actually no longer looks like the God you say you believe in. And, and, and that might be at times um, an expression of faith, even as it looks like, um, uh, even as it looks like a denial of faith. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to claim your actions as an anonymous Christian, but I'm just saying, saying that um, I think if what I believe is true, when the books are opened, certain things will be celebrated as good works that perhaps at the time um, looked like, made you look like an enemy. Um, I think there's faithful ways to challenge the status quo. Um, <laughs> I'm reminded of Augustine's quote, uh, which is brutal, but I'll say it anyway for listeners' pleasure. The church is a whore, but she's your mother. <laughs> and I think there is a truth to this, that the church is a messy, messy, com compromised institution, um, but it can be uh, the birthplace of faith. Um, you can, in a compromised community, still experience life the church that I was involved in, which still has some great things going on, so I don't want to damn the whole thing. I didn't like the form, but it's got some great things going on. My wife at one stage looked down some of the aisles and just said, you know what? There's gold in so many of these people, despite the fact that I don't like the institutional form. And I think a lot of these things are salvaged when you find a few people that actually live this well. And, and, and that comes back to uh, Philip Yancey in his book, Soul Survivor. He'd been abused by bad institutions the whole way through, but it was seeing a number of people who actually lived it well. Uh, I, I know, and again, it's not claiming any, <laughs> any goodness on my part, but my conversations with Mitch, he said at one stage um, for Nick and I, he said, the only thing that stops me totally junking the whole thing is I've journeyed with you for like 20 years now, and I know you actually genuinely live this stuff. And it makes me realize that there's some sanity in all of this. I just, I can't find a community to journey with. And, and so for him and for me, it literally looks like an honest two-way friendship and conversation um, where we catch up every six weeks and just talk about it. Um, for Mitch and I, it's actually meant occasionally opening up the Bible and practicing, um, like just like someone might practice meditation or they might practice mindfulness, actually leaning into some of these practices like Lectio Divina, ways of reading the Bible. You don't have to believe that God exists even to be able to open a text and seek wisdom. I actually think it's a classic um, text, which means that it has um, a timelessness and it has uh, a generativity that comes out of engaging this in all ages. And even if you hate it and disagree with it, that itself is generative because you're working out who you are in, in wrestling with this text. Um, so, so I think take the shackles off and don't say this is a religious practice engage some of the core practices with someone who actually lives this out and looks in character um, a bit like Jesus. Um, and even press that person to say, hey, um, I'm not saying I want to become a Christian. I just want to see what is in this. Is there some life in this thing? What is this about? And so for me, that means just opening up my life, sharing a couple of stories, um, journeying with a community that's imperfect, but connecting them with people who are trying, however poorly, to do this. Um, 
to be those kind of pilgrims who stumble onward, hopefully rejoicing in the process. So I think there's ways forward. I'm also encouraged by, again, connecting to the global church. There's a lot of stories in um, particularly uh, Islamic countries that are closed. Uh, and again, this, this, this will be a story, I'm sure, easily deconstructed by those who um, uh, don't believe in the supernatural. But uh, there are so many reports coming back of people whose dreams have actually had persistent themes of the man in white or visions of someone saying, go and talk to this person. And then they actually discover that this person is a follower of Christ and they just start reading, for instance, Proverbs together. Um, this is actually the norm, not the exception in stories of coming to faith in closed countries. Um, we're hearing this back regularly in terms of genuine stories where we know the people involved. Um, so these are not some beat up story that we're going, oh, take faith, things are happening. Um, there is a way, uh, there is a way and, and God is bigger than our failed church. So, um, so I have grace even for the church that's failing as well, just as I want to have grace for people who don't believe the same as I do. Uh, but it's definitely an imperfect institution. So I'm sympathetic to, uh, to those who feel shut out. And um, I just want to keep challenging the church to try and actually live in line with what they're saying, because I think better things are possible in this. Beautifully said, uh, Dave. Yeah, beautifully said. I know Roger and um, I mean, really looking forward to this. And um, it's been really good uh, touching base and talking to you and hearing about your story and hearing about your um, your thoughts of Christianity and your thoughts of church and um, and how ultimately it's about kind of showing people the way of Jesus, the way of Christ and leading them to live it themselves rather than being uh, told how to do it, but actually seeing it happen and then uh, working that out for themselves and just making a decision for themselves and going with it if they want to. It's um, it's refreshing. Um, Dave, before I let you go, um, I know Roger said he's not with more questions, so I'm just going to assume that's correct and move on. Um, <laughs> so Dave, <laughs> bypass. Yeah, man. yeah. You're, you're gone. Just, just, just block them out. <laughs> Um, so uh before you go um it'd be good just to kind of hear how people can reach out or touch base if they want to or kind of follow anything that you do so where would you want to direct people to if they wanted to yeah find you uh good question um probably just go through licc.org.uk um licc.org.uk that's the organization i work for um you can find my details there um uh, happy to share my email, though I may get a whole lot of spam from this, but uh, dave.benson at licc.org.uk. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well um, and uh, regular connect through that. So, um, yeah, always open to a conversation. I, <laughs> I have too many emails to sort, but I really do love face-to-face -face or Zoom conversations. So if, uh, if someone wants to chat, if that's helpful, love to hear your story and, um, and uh, yeah, see if I can encourage you in some way. Mason, what do Thanks, Sam. Hey, I love your podcast. Hey, like, seriously, this is so good to have... Um, healthy dialogue so so thanks for making space Mate, for yeah thank today. you for coming it's been an absolute pleasure and roger thank you for coming as well dude always a pleasure i hope you enjoyed this episode of when belief dies as always to leave any comments or thoughts head on over to youtube to follow me on twitter or to see where else i'm online check out the links in the description thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.